Good evening, you are listening to Three Moves Ahead, and I'm your host, Rob Zachney. With me tonight is one of my regular panel, Julian Rabbit Murdoch. Hello, doing, everyone. Tonight we are joined by returning guest and our friend, uh, Risk Legacy designer, Rob Davio. Rob, welcome back to the show. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. We've been sort of circling around this uh, topic off and on, I would say, what, for months, Julian? About six, it, about six months we keep bringing this game up. If you haven't heard about it, uh, Risk Legacy is the newest uh, version of Risk, and it uses some perhaps revolutionary, certainly certainly very bold innovations uh, to do with permanence and consequences. And so I suppose to start us off, before we get into some of the concepts that Risk Legacy plays around with, uh, we, we should get into what it is and what it does and why it's become so widely discussed and I don't know. Has it become controversial in some quarters, even? Uh, yes. Yes, I can assure you. <laughs> when you asked what it does, my immediate answer was going to say, make a lot of people mad. Uh, <laughs> you want to give us the uh, the elevator pitch on, on you know Risk Legacy and what it does, and then we can start ripping it apart and why it's making every nerd I know have an aneurysm? Uh, yeah. Hopefully we'll find some good points in there, too. Uh, the game itself has some object permanence. Um, I guess the heart of the idea is that when you play one game, you're going to make some decisions, not all of them, but a few key decisions that will carry over into future games. And so it has a permanent sort of existence. So you might do something in game one that's there every time you play that version, that particular iteration of the board game forever. Um, And so the decisions don't sort of disappear and the board doesn't magically reset. Uh, I think at its heart... I was looking for a way to create the story of a world as formed by the people who fight on it. And so the world itself is is kind of permanent. So that's the big thing that's the hook. Um, there's a couple other moderate to minor things that I'll probably end up bringing up as we go along. We should probably point out we're not going to spoil stuff because I, I think you know one thing that you're sort of selling short here is that how these permanent changes happen is through what video gamers know of as unlocks, right? And you'll be playing along and there'll be trigger conditions, uh, which are written all over the board and all over the game, um, where, you know, if this happens, then crack open the seal on this, you know, pack of cards or crack open, you know, this uh, bin full of other figures or, uh, you know, open up this set of new rules that are going to change the game. So, so you know, in a, in a video game, that's sort of the equivalent of starting with the really simple game, but then unlocking the sword or unlocking the you know the pikemen right you're, you're sort of constantly expanding on the game so it's not just a matter of oh well this continent was here and now it's been wiped out or we all played that kind of nuclear risk when we were kids like the actual game is changing as it goes yeah that, that's sort of the second half of the design it's the less controversial side i suppose which is why i didn't lead with it which is yeah we've taken about half the content and locked it up um, and so you have to earn the right to do it. The, the difference is between that and a video game is you could just open it anytime you wanted. So it becomes a little bit of the present under the Christmas tree, which is do you have the willpower not to open it until the game says so, or are you just at some point going to say, ah, oh, forget this, I want to see what's in there. But I will not mention what's in any of the envelopes or packs tonight. Right. Yeah, we will We will avoid spoilers. But I think it's safe to say 
um, they add complexity, right? I mean, they, you open up the rule book and there are, you know, there's one one section where there's almost a full half page of little slots for new rules that will only come in later in the game. And and without getting into a lot of depth, I think most strategy gamers can imagine the kinds of things they are. They add different play styles, different unit types, different powers, different ways to break the rules, right? Everything you would imagine that you would add to take a game that is fundamentally very simple in Risk um, and add interesting complexity to it. And indeed, the same kinds of complexity we've seen added to risk over the years through countless modifications, whether it's, you know, house rules or or risk 2210 or any of the myriad, you know, risk variants, they've all added some little tweak or level of complexity to the sort of core risk mechanic, which which at its face is is ridiculously simple, really. You know, just as as we get started here, I was I, I am thinking we should be careful about being too cautious about spoilers. Like, you know, we might need to talk about at least a couple of the early game changes that people are going to experience in their first, you know, two or three sessions. Uh, we might need to discuss some of that stuff just to bring it out of the realm of the abstract and just speak concretely about sort of what's in that box. Uh, just because, I mean, you know, this isn't this isn't lost. Uh, to an extent, this is uh, th- this is a game we need to discuss. So I just just bear that in mind. But I'm I'm interested to hear you say that one half of what you did with Risk Legacy is has not been controversial, and, and that is sort of the sort of the unlocks the the things that sort of alter the game. But the the other part is that the the continuing story uh, being told through one one set of Risk Legacy. Has been has been subject to uh, some negative reactions. I find that really strange because when I think about them, and perhaps this is just from having you describe the game to me a couple times over the over the past year or so, I think of them as uh, inextricable. You you can't you can't prize them apart. Uh, so it it seems strange to me that I, I'm not sure I would see how the, how one of these systems would really work without the other. They they seem to enrich each other a great deal. Um, and they do, and it. I definitely started with the idea of making permanent changes to the board first and the idea of having pieces of the game locked away and then sort of unlocked as you play came later, but then the design really ping-ponged back and forth so that they played off each other. So at this point, I can't say which one is the lead idea, if there isn't a lead idea, or if they're just sort of emerged between the two. But the idea of having these extra things that are locked away aren't very controversial because it's almost like putting the expansions into the game. Right? Instead of buying the game and then you go out and you buy this expansion, that expansion, we've included them in there and we've just given you the conditions that say, hey, open this expansion when this happens. Um, but the other half is causing some people, some people find it really interesting and some people, um, for a variety of different reasons from what I can figure out, just do not like the idea of making permanent alterations to the game. I mean, I think there's there's two levels of, of alteration here, which which I think are interesting. Like the first one is is really a personalization, right? I mean, you you win you win a game and you get to name a continent, and then if you own that continent, it's more important for you than for anybody else who ever plays that game, right? And that's a fairly radical idea, right? Because because it makes the game now have sort of a bias towards one person. Now, you you put in very sort of catch-up features and, and mechanisms where those things can't run away. Right? In future games, winners can wipe out those biases by permanently making con- continents less powerful, for instance. But even the losers in any given game get to, for instance, found a new city um, or alter the cards so that certain places get more resources. So if I'm I'm, I'm well-known in risk, my local risk circles is always loving playing out of Australia. So I 
I might take the opportunity after losing a game to upgrade one of the Australian con- you know countries so that they're more powerful later in the game because I know that that's always going to be a cornerstone of my strategy. Right, so those are very personal, and and those I think are going to be very different game group to game group. Um, the other ones, I mean, when you first open up the box, this is certainly no spoiler. The first thing you do is you take each, sort of each faction that you might be playing, and you can give it one of two powers. So I might play, uh, you know, the the whichever is it the Enclave of the Bear? Or am I thinking Enclave of the Bear? Enclave yeah. of the Bear, right? And they have two powers which are sort of appropriate to their sort of aggressive style. But you only get to pick one, and the other one you literally are supposed to tear up the card and throw it away and i recall the first time i played this which was with Corey banks he had to actually do that tearing of the card and and he actually like broke out a little bit into a sweat at the idea that he was destroying this piece of content even though it was clearly designed to be pick a or b it wasn't like there was ever going to be a chance where you were going to make this game any different Uh, it's true it's playing off of preconceptions like writing on a game board is you don't do that. And I understand that. And I have a game collection and I treat it very seriously and I keep some things in shrink wrap. But really, when, it's a piece of cardboard when you come down to it. And so it's, it's messing with the idea of what you write on and what you don't. If I gave you a pizza box and asked you to write on it, you would have no hesitation. But a game board has this extra level that you're just not supposed to do it. Um, so there is a I guess a sort of sense of asking people to break a taboo that's in there. And that the same thing comes with ripping up a card. If you took a sticker off a sticker sheet and put it onto a model airplane, you would have no hesitation of ripping up the sticker sheet when you're done. But because it's a card and because it's in a game, it has this sort of heritage that this is not what you do to something. And um, that causes people to sort of just pause for a moment. Well, that was actually something I really appreciated from the first, is that, the, I mean, the first thing that you ask players to do is destroy a part of their game. Uh, this isn't something you sort of gently lead up to, like, no, there's going to be permanence, these choices can't be undone. Well, no, it it says it on the box. It says yeah, exactly. it on the box. There's a sticker to open the box, like when you're opening, you know, a, a package of cereal, and there's a little, you know, thing you have to break open that says, what does it say, Rob? What it can- says, no, what's done can never be undone. Right. So- and there, and- there was a lot of design thought going into the unboxing of this. Um, we wanted people to sort of have to run the gauntlet at the very beginning before you even play your first game and kind of take a couple steps to see how this is different. So you have to break the seal at the beginning that says it can't be undone. And then you open the game, and the way the box is designed is you see these four envelopes that are sealed off. So immediately you see, oh, here are four things you can't touch. So your first instinct when you open a game is to grab everything, and we say, no, don't grab these. And then the game board is up top, and there's a label on there that you're supposed to sign. And I forget the exact words because it's longer wording, but basically says, we, the undersigned, take responsibility for everything that's about to happen. So you have to kind of write on your board, and then after that, the first thing you have to do is put a sticker on a card and then throw away the other sticker. So there is a sort of sense of initiation to a new way of thinking on here, which hopefully people will like. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I mean, there's 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 all this sort of controversy about it. And the fact that there are these unlocks makes it slightly difficult to talk about, as Rob was saying. Um, and we'll decide how much of a spoiler alert we need to put on this. Um, but it does take, uh, you know, ideas that have been used on a lot of risk before, um, like having certain territories worth more or less, you know, being more valuable on offense, being more value on defense, right? These are sort of core ideas to the myriad risk variants that we've seen before. Um, they're just sort of doled out a little bit differently. So, you know, when you start the game, everybody has these scar cards, which let you basically um, make make a territory either easier or harder to defend, either plus one or minus 
one to your highest ion defense. Um, and then those things start getting modified by new things that you start unlocking, right? There, there's, there's no secret there. There are little spaces for new scar cards that you know, the rules will come out for um, that let you do things like make all the individual territories more or less powerful. Um, and and the cool thing that that I've started seeing on like the board game geek threads for this is you know every board has uh, has a sequential stamp on it like it's actually imprinted into the board so you know I know that I am world one hundred thousand and forty three right and that's my unique board and people have started posting sort of the story you know the after action report of their risk board and where it ends up and you know in the very first game I played we had people fighting over that straight between Africa and uh, and Brazil, right, which is always contentious. Um, and the first thing that happened in one of the early combats was both people played bunkers, which made them get bonuses on defense, right? So it became, you know, we actually labeled it on the board with a Sharpie that that became the Straits of Inertia, right? And that's completely changed the strategic layout of that board, right? That is no longer a place that you want to be fighting a battle. You may want to own it, but you definitely don't want to be fighting over it. Yeah, something similar happened uh, actually in my early games is that the entire belt from uh, like Mexico down through Brazil across to Africa, all of that became heavily fortified, and uh, which works brilliantly for me because I kind of made Africa my central headquarters. So I feel like I've got this this bulwark. But what what's great about this is, uh, you know, I mean, I I will be honest, I've always had mixed feelings about the Risk games. Uh, I, I, I'm, I'm sure you're no stranger to why those feelings are mixed. You've probably thought yep. about, yeah, I mean, you've already done so much to change the game. But it's one of those games where I, you know, every once in a while I would dig it out and then I would play it and I would be done with it. It wasn't something I was, you know, saying, oh boy, I can't wait for my next, for my next game. Here, as these changes sort of, uh, you know, unfurl across the board, you know, the moment you finish your game, not only do you have the sort of unlocks or teasing you like what's in you know what's what's that card we're going to pull out what you know what's in that packet but you're also thinking now you're dealing with a different you're dealing with different terrain and you're thinking well how's the next game going to go and so the moment i finish one game i'm really excited to play the next one because no 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 it's going to be a totally new strategy uh, it evolves very quickly in a way that i don't think risk ever really did before it it really does strike me more of like playing one long game of civilization than being multiple games of anything, right? Because one of the interesting things about this, and 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 Rob, you can tell me whether I'm just you know, reading authorial intent and where it isn't doesn't belong, <laughs> um, is that you know it starts out ridiculously simple. I mean, all, I think almost simpler than Basic Risk, right? Where where you've got super simple victory conditions, the game can be over in 45 minutes if it goes a particular way. Um, there's there's really nothing particularly fancy about it. The powers that are on the cards often won't even come into play in that first game, and if they do maybe it'll only happen once or twice um and then as you start unlocking things the whole nature of the game changes and on top of that the economy of the game ramps up because one of the things that happens over the games is that the losers get to start upgrading cards so that when you're getting you know in, in classic risk you take over territory you get a card on um, the old version you used to like trade in gin rummy hands to get more more guys on the board in the new system you sort of trade those in on a points basis those points keep going up 
and up and up. So even if you really never unlocked anything for whatever reason, which I imagine could happen statistically, the economy of the game starts ramping up drastically after about game six, seven, eight. Um, and, and that really changes the nature of the game. So the game that you're playing at the end is actually a very different game strategically and just in the core rules than you're starting with. So it feels much more like, you know, you start a game of civilization and you're playing with like one settler and, you know, one, you know, swordsman is running off trying to beat up your enemies. And by the end of it, you're managing, you know, complex tech trees and, and all sorts of craziness. Um, and, and really the whole experience is like one big video game that just happens to play out over 15 or 20 any games of risk uh, yes <laughs> <laughs> uh, well good night everybody <laughs> uh, that was <clears throat> the idea was to try to bring narrative into a board game and to have the games each play differently and the idea of cliffhangers which rob mentioned that when you finish a game and either you open a pack or not you look at the board and you go huh well that's different now there's some cities here and this territory is worth a lot. I bet when I play next time and you start thinking about what you're going to do in the next game and how it may have been different from just a couple games ago because of the way that the world changed. Um, and then what Julian is saying is the idea of, yeah, there's definitely an early game, mid game and late game sort of feel to these. And we, you know, the early game is supposed to be skirmish like and simple because what we discovered before we started locking things away is when we had everything in from the beginning is that people made bad choices. They got so excited about putting stickers on the board, and that's how you actually, you know, if you want to put a bunker down to make a territory permanently easier to defend, you put a sticker with a bunker on it on the board and it doesn't come off. And we had all the scars out and all the powers, and people made really bad choices because they didn't get a sense of how they were going to roll out. And so what we did is we started saying, okay, we're not going to give you these choices until later in the game when you've played it a few times and you can see how it's going to affect you. Um, and that's what led to some of locking some of the things away. Okay, now, see, now I want to circle back because that really raises a lot of questions then about like how this game was designed and developed because I'd always sort of envisioned it as... Uh, well, pretty much like it, it springs fully formed from your, from your brain you make the game. Uh, so you were experimenting with having all this stuff sort of ready to play with at the beginning... Uh, can you work through how you sort of evolved it to its present to its present uh, system? Yeah, I mean, it's been a few years. I mean, it was a long time to develop because there was so much playtesting that had to go into it. But I remember a lot of the early games had the idea of making permanent changes, of changing territories to become more or less valuable. Um, at the beginning, you didn't change the factions, and now you do. Um, but at the beginning, it was kind of a mess because a lot of this stuff was random. Like, I like the idea that if the attacker rolled three natural sixes it showed like a really strong attack and then this would happen and this scar would go on the board and it was just chaotic and my friend my friend and co-worker craig van ness who i did HeroScape with and he did we did risk 2210 together played one of these versions and he said that he wanted more control risk was random enough with combat and if you're throwing more random on stuff on top people are going to just get frustrated um, that the world was not in their control. And that was like a big aha design redirect. And so from there, it started to be that all of the changes, I think all of, all of or close to all of the changes that are going to take place in this game, a player makes a decision on. You know, the game doesn't play you. You may not understand fully the ramifications of it. Later on, you may look back and go, ooh, that wasn't a great decision, but it was a decision you made. So it got reconfigured to be like, okay, these are decisions people are going to make. But then um, 
once we started doing that, people started making, again, bad decisions. They had information overload. They had five different SCAR types, and they had this, and they had that, and they wanted to, um, and I'm being a little vague because we locked some of these things away, and it, it really did end up with sort of broken games, four or five games in. And so we started pulling back and saying, well, let's just start you with the base scars. Easier to defend, harder to defend. But, but let's the, give, the interesting thing about that, that, you know, that somebody has to make a decision to engage in the unlock. Um, I, I think the only one that, and in, in, again, not, it's not a spoiler because it's written on the front of the box, right? Um, one of the conditions is when somebody's completely eliminated from the game. Hard to say that that's a decision you might not have made otherwise, but there is one that I find really interesting, which has happened to me in two different boards that we that I've played through, um, where uh, if three missiles are used in any one combat, something unlocks, and it's one in the big ones. It's right, it's a bin, so I'm assuming there are figures in it. But I have yet to actually unlock this one in a game, um, but but I'm guessing that there's figures in it because it's in a figure box. Um, and in order for that to happen, in order for somebody to have three missiles. Um, people have to collaborate, collaborate, right? So the, the missiles are sort of, uh, you know, if you haven't won the game before, if you've never signed the board, you get a little star, which is like a free victory point. If you have won the game before, you get a missile, which basically lets you make any die a six, basically at any time on your combat, on somebody else's combat, whatever. So in order for three people to all use their missiles in the same combat, there has to be some sort of community zeitgeist going on about, okay, we really need to gang up on this guy or we really need to, you know, two people need to decide to really help out a defender and give him sixes. Um, and one person needs to go against that. And in both of the boards that I've played, there's been this moment where there wasn't necessarily a strategic reason for all three people to want to toss their missiles in. But everybody, would, there was always an argument about, come on, if you just play your missile, then we get to open the other thing in the box. Or they create this sort of metagame around the unlocks, which I found really fascinating. And yet both times playing with hardcore strategy gamers, Somebody's always been like, I'm not using my missile. There's no reason I need to win this combat. I'm saving it. I might win this game. Right, which was exactly the decision we wanted to put people in. Um, but remember that you get one missile for every time you've won the game. So you could get to game eight or nine, and someone could sit down with three missiles by themselves. Ah, okay. right? right, And the very first turn say, I attack you. I'm using three missiles. Let's, let's see what's in here. <laughs> right. So eventually one person can crack, so to speak. Or that person maybe at the end of the game in a different situation, may say, I'm not going to win this game, but I'm going to go out in a blaze of glory and see what the hell's in there. Right. So there's, there's, it requires collaboration at the beginning, but not as the games go on. But one thing from a design point is, I know that that is not going to be open before game four. Right, it can't be. Right. right. So, so when you talked about people making bad decisions when they had too many options in front of them, you know, could you... Could, can you distinguish between was it a, was it a bad decision in that they were making the game like they were changing the board in ways that would make later games worse, or were they making bad decisions that they were just doing things that were making the game less fun for themselves? Uh, that might um, be uh, those, this could be those could be synonymous. You know, I mean, right. obviously they could be, but what, what was the concern it, there? Well, it's a little of both. What's different about this game is that the person who wins games, or or even a person who plays a game, as, as Julian has mentioned gets to manipulate the board to their advantage. So if I play the game and I win some and I lose some, I may be trying to create a power base in Africa or I can found a major city, which is a starting space for me and me, you know, me alone. Um, so as the games come on, something that's different about this game is you may sit down for game six and you're not on all equal footing. 
As a matter of fact, if I've won like four out of the six games, the other players really should be banding against me. And so there's a different sort of mindset that you have to take when you go to play this game, which is you sit down and you kind of look at it and say, oh, okay, this player has the advantage. We need to knock him down or get him out, and then we can fight amongst ourselves to see who wins so we can rebalance the world in our favor. And what was happening is in early games, people were making very short-term tactical decisions about that game that were allowing a runaway leader problem, right? You weren't thinking strategically of, but if we didn't give you some cool power that could really hurt the leader until game six or seven, now you're going to use it not necessarily for the person who's winning that game, but for the person who's sort of winning the larger series of games. And so it enabled the game to come back into balance um, by not giving people those tools until it was clear who to use them against. Why make a why make a game like this at all? I mean, this is this is a radical departure from Risk, and I mean, as, as you pointed out yourself tonight, it really breaks a lot of board gaming ta- taboos. It's it's really untraditional, and I think actually, you know, in, in a weird way, it this version of Risk made a lot more sense to people who've played games on the video game side of things than it necessarily did to to board game folk. Uh, so. What was sort of the genesis of uh, your decision to make Risk uh, evolve? Um, It actually started out with Clue. I was at a uh, a meeting for Clue or a brainstorm. I can't remember. It was about three years ago. And we were setting up to play a game, and I made the offhand comment of, I don't know why they invite Colonel Mustard. He's killed like three people in a row. (laughs) Like, what a horrible dinner guest. Just because through the random sort cards that have been going on at work from games we've been playing recently, it just happened to be Mustard. And there was this little thing that went off. I'm like, wow, why don't games remember? Why are games always Groundhog Day? You know, why do they reset? Why do like, you know, Mustard just keeps stabbing people? Like, come to dinner again. It'll be great. Um, (laughs) And so I thought, wouldn't it be interesting if you could have the idea of like, well, who are the usual suspects? You know, that some inspector shows up and and says, well, clearly, Mustard, you're at the top of my list because you've you have a string of bodies behind you. (laughs) Um, And so I played around it with it for Clue for a little bit, but ultimately. Um, moved it over to Risk because Risk, in a sense, always has this ongoing narrative. Um, it kind of dovetailed into something else. Is My brothers aren't big gamers, um, but we'll play on Christmas when they visit. And Christmas 2000, so what, 11 years ago, um, we were playing Risk, and we my, had a deal with my brother. I was in Africa, and he was in South America, and he just backstabbed me. Not to win, just because he got bored and decided he was going to betray me. And I was furious. And I've never played Risk with him since then. We've played other things. But if we ever sit down and play Risk, I'm going to backstab him 11 years later, (laughs) right? Because, you know, every rat has to suck the pipe. I mean, basically (laughs) what happens is, you know, and I realize that in Risk, as soon as you sit down to play, the people are already discussing, uh, don't let Julian get Australia because he likes to start there. Uh, Zachney likes to start in Africa, don't forget this. Remember when you betrayed me and sort of this sense that there already was a narrative. And so I took that idea from Clue and said, well, how can we take the idea of an ongoing narrative and put it into risk where there already is a sense of narrative from people playing it? Right. And the, the fun thing has been for me because I, you know, I tend to play with a lot of different groups. I mean, I play with a group in San Francisco and I play with a group here. I've sort of been carrying my copy of Risk Around, which has a little handle on it, which makes it convenient. Um, so I'm, I'm often playing with like one other person that I've played this board with before and maybe two or three people who haven't. And I, I have to say there's a certain kind of pride when I crack the board open and I have to retell the narrative of the game. Like, okay, let me let me catch you up on what's happened to date. And one of the one of the sort of house 
rules I've implemented on my board is whenever anybody puts a sticker down, they have to or or signs the board or anything else, um, they have to like initial it and then put the game number. So I can say, oh, in game number one, this is what came out. In game number two, this is what came out. Right. And it, it's it's kind of fun. It's turned it a little bit into a bit of a role playing game. The flip side of that is some of the effects, right? Like the winner of each game being able to either have a continent that's theirs or a personal starting space that's worth an extra two territories. Those are less prominent in the games as they go on because I'm kind of mixing it up with 10 or 15 different players. Uh, yeah. I mean, the assumption was when we designed the game that Risk Legacy was going to be played by people who played with mostly the same people most of the time. And it was designed for people who had played Risk and then moved on either to different games or video games or, you know, everyone kind of goes through that Risk phase at some point in their teen or childhood where they're like, well, wow, games can are a little bit more open than I thought. Um, and so we wanted to basically kind of capture something. It's like, oh, you think you know how to play Risk. You think Australia's where to start every time or South America. Well, let's see what happens when a bunch of people kind of pollute South America and make it inhospitable, and then challenge you to think differently about how to win, not on any risk board, but on this risk board. I have heard you uh, not necessarily denigrate risk, but sort of, I mean, you know what it is, you know its limitations, and, uh, you you know, I I think before we we recorded tonight, you you said it it barely fits the definition of strategy, you're not sure if it's an appropriate topic for 3MA, and... You know, I gotta say that with the, with this latest edition, I mean, this was this was the first time I played Risk, and I felt like I was playing a decent intro level war game. Uh, did, did you go through any of that, Julian? Yeah, I mean, I think I think certainly because you're you have that video game like experience of sort of working through the tutorial and things getting more interesting. Um, I mean, even a game like you know uh, Panzer Corps, which we talked about quite a bit on the show, right? Which which starts off at a, a sort of near easy board game level of complexity if you're going through the campaign mode you know you have two or three kinds of units and they're all very easily understood and you're moving across your hex grid and it's over in seven or eight turns right i mean that that has a very sort of simple almost risk-like quality to it um, where there's just not a lot of complexity into it but then it builds quite quickly and all of a sudden you're managing naval units and air attacks and 16 different kinds of infantry troops and you know it becomes really interesting and strategic and terrain starts mattering more right so i think the appeal of this is um I'm honestly the, the closest parallel I can make is what they did with Dungeons and Dragons fourth edition oddly which was they took a lot of video game tropes and they said, hey, you know what, let's take the original role-playing experience and sort of put it in the context that video gamers understand, because they're used to about thinking about roles, not classes. They're used to thinking about um, abilities, not sort of one-shot uses and then go rest for a while, right? They, they, they video gameized role-playing, and I think they did it to a quite a good extent, uh, to a, quite a good effect there um, for all of 4th Edition's flaws. I think that what I see happening in this, putting aside all the controversy about whether people want to put Sharpie on their boards or not, is a really interesting approach to that tutorial level of gaming. I mean, we talk a lot on this podcast about getting people into strategy games and intro-level strategy games. Because let's face it, it only takes about eight words for us to start rambling off about advanced squad leader red barricades scenarios, at which point we lose what little audience we have, right? Because there's only like nine people left on the planet that know what we're talking about, right? This, in Risk Legacy, what I see is a really interesting approach 
to that kind of tutorial method of thinking. It's very Valve-like in a sense, that idea of give people little skills, give people new introductions to things, and then make them use them in interesting ways as the game progresses. Uh, that was the that was the intent. I mean, that's something that I definitely cribbed from the video game world. Um, it's always frustrated, frustrated, frustrated me in tabletop games that you require people to do this sort of reading comprehension test followed by an oral defense, uh, you know, to all, and and that everyone has to sort of absorb a flowchart into their head before you can even start. And so the idea here is, well, how can we take if you've played Risk? When you pick up Risk Legacy, you can probably go, oh, there's like six different things, and then we can get started. But by the time you get to the end, there's a lot of things you'd have to learn. But if you've played most or all of the games in between, you'll you'll hardly notice, because we're sort of doling out these rules and powers one at a time, um, with the result being that we can recreate that effect that video games have of, we're going to start you easy, and we're going to work your way through it. Except now, Rob, you don't play video games. Except well, at least you didn't until the last couple of years. So, is this just stuff you've observed from listening to Julian prattle on? Or, I, um, I mean, you know, you just got you just got a three sixty. So, so where were you know where were you getting sort of introduced to these these progression ideas, these unlock ideas, these tutorial ideas that video games have really been perfecting? Uh, where were you sort of where were you sort of picking that up? What was what was uh, on your mind as you were working on this? Well, Julian would uh, send stuff across to my telegraph, and from there I would go. <laughs> uh, click, click, um, click, 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 click. Yeah. Uh, no, I mean, I am not as avid a video game player as the two of you, um, which is easy to do. Right? It's, it's, <laughs> right, like you guys set the bar pretty high to do so. But I, you know, I've had an original Xbox, I've had a Wii, I played stuff on computers. I mean, I played a lot of video games way back, you know, the Atari 2600 and Commodore 64 and the early Macintosh games, I got shut out of... Video games left me aside when I didn't have a console and I was on a Mac in the 90s. Right. And, like, it was hard to get video games. And about that time, I rediscovered board games and then got a career in board games. So if I have some free time, I tend to play a board game just to help my career. But I I haven't ignored them. I watch people play. I play some once in a while. I download some things. I just... I don't play them as avidly as a lot of my circle of friends do. So how, so, so, I mean, you know, what have you, have you felt like you're moving in a direction that you don't have quite the grounding for? I mean, cause without that, uh, that's a bad way of putting it. I mean, with, without that sort of sense of what video games are doing in the tutorial space, where, you know, where's the connection there? Or is this just sort of something you felt was sort of in the ether of games that just wasn't getting applied well? Yeah, it was taking something that was being applied to one sense of gaming and applied it to a different sense of gaming in sort of a non-traditional way. I've always been fascinated by how you explain how to play a game. Um, the worst way to learn how to play a game is from the rule book, but it's you know the best option because you can't put a person in the box to emerge and start <laughs> explaining the game to you. Um, interestingly enough, my job at Hasbro changed in the past couple months, and I'm now in charge of the group that does all the rules. So it's my... <laughs> It's my uh, so from now on a Teddy Ruxpin in every box. Yes, actually, I will appear in each and every household on Christmas morning. (laughs) I'm going to be very busy, and I will explain how to uh, play every single game that we make. Um, So this has always been an interest of mine, and this looked like when we were looking at um, kind of locking stuff away for people's own good, so to speak, so that they didn't make it, didn't put a sticker down in game one and go, "Man, I really didn't have a sense of." 
how that was going to affect things, it kind of dovetailed neatly into, well, if we do this and we do this and we put this here and we put this here, what we have left is risk plus 5%, which is a very easy learning experience. And then from there, it's kind of like, oh, just like video games, we can kind of do the tutorial thing, play this, play this, open this, or, you know, get this new power, this new upgrade, this new world, and then go from there. And it, it seemed pretty natural. It's how I explain games. When I explain a game, I don't explain every single rule. Usually what happens, I explain enough for people to get going and then have that just-in-time rules experience. Oh, at this point, I should tell everyone that this could happen and this could happen. Then you're just absorbing one thing at a time as opposed to having to digest 30 to 40 different things and how they all fit together. Well, yeah, that that reminds me of, uh, you know, I learned to play uh, War of the Ring. Uh, from you, and yep. I've sort of followed what you did with that game every time I've played it, which is, you know, tell people the absolute bare minimum because there's a lot of stuff that will come up. You know, we will cross that bridge when it comes to it. A lot of the stuff you won't deal with for an hour. You don't know when it's gonna when it's gonna come up, but yeah, if you tell people like, so here's how all these here's how all these individual systems work, and then let me explain to you how they all interlock to create you know the 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 overarching game. You know, you've. I mean, it will t- you will spend longer explaining than you will, you will playing, right? Uh, right, and it's it's so important to like sort of have, you know, if you got if you got a if you got a big sprawling game, it's it's got to be modular, right? You can only digest so much at once. I mean, the downside to that, you know, I played with some people and they get a third in, and I say, <clears throat> oh, so now let me explain this rule because it's going to be relevant, and they go, well, if I had known that, I would have made completely different right. plans, and you've ruined the game. You know, I always consider, you know, the first time you play a game, you're playing to understand the rules and pick a strategy and go with it. And if you win, congratulations. And if not, you now know how to play. And then when you sit down the next time you can play to win. Um, but yeah, I feel like there's only so much that people can put into their head at one time. And, um, the person who explained Agricola to me, although I like this person very much spent about an hour and a half explaining Agricola and all of the details and how they'll work together and all of the strategy. So by the time I started playing, all I wanted to do was leave the table. And I'd been there. <laughs> I'd been there 90 minutes. I'm like, I should be done now, right? And it's it's not a hard it's a hard game to play well, but it shouldn't be a hard game to get going. Right. right? Do this, do this, do this. Right. Um, and you can explain a lot of the decisions along the way. Right, and point out and say, "Well, you may want to do this instead of this." And, and you know, and kind of treat it as a tutorial game. Um, so I've always been sort of enamored of the idea of how you just give people just enough information when playing a game. And so that somewhat tied into the um, the unlock stuff, but that makes it sound very, very cold when really a lot of what the unlock stuff is just friggin' awesome. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's a chance to add narrative. You know, one of the things that, and, I, and you mentioned Lost earlier, Rob, is... Season five of Lost had just finished when I was working on this, and I was a big fan of the show, except for season six. And um, <laughs> and uh, I was always amazed that every season seemed to be like, oh, this season's science fiction, oh, this season's horror, or this season's time travel, that they managed to like really reset what you expected out of it. And so wanted to pick up a lot of that and put it into the game, which is, okay, can there be something in a board game that when you open it up and there's a handful of cards and some stickers actually radically makes you rethink everything you've done to that point. So that was a big design thing we were trying to do with all the stuff that's locked away is not be like, okay, you've opened this and now there's a new power. And you go, okay, that's cool, a new power, that's interesting. Instead, be like, all right, there's now a new power and you're on fire. Right? We, we tried to <clears throat> really try to push 
the expectations, what's in there. And so some are more dramatic than others. I don't want people to listen to this and then open something and go, oh, it's, it's just a couple new cards. Um, but it, there are times where we wanted to sort of take the game and do what world history has done, which is provide something unexpected, then challenge the people living in that world to deal with it. Right. Let's, I, w- I want to talk a little bit about the, not, not so much the sort of unlocky video game parts of things, um, but, but a little bit about this permanence idea, because I, I would say that, you know, if, if you're a board gamer and you, you found out about this game by, say, reading Board Game Geek or uh, one of the several previews that got put up around the web, um, you might think that Rob Davio is actually Satan's man-child, uh, because boy, the vitriol that came out over this idea that you were going to permanently touch your board in some way. Uh, And I don't know whether it's just some stereotypical uh, gamer OCD spectrum disorder that that many of us suffer from. And, And hey, I get that, right? There are certain games that I'm like, you know, I put the cards in sleeves. But for the most part, I'm a guy that if I spill scotch on a game, I feel like now that game is mine and, you know, it, it's uniquely, you know, my thing. Um, I think that, that the, this idea that you're changing the board in some permanent way rankled two, two things. One was this idea that every game should be collectible because um, I, I'm, I'm more than willing to admit I have a big board game collection and the number of games that I've played more than 15 times is pretty small. Even games I love... You know, I mean, even a game like Agricola, which is probably one of my favorite games of all time, maybe I've played that 15 or 20 times in real life, played a lot of it online. Um, You know, it's really a handful of games, and there's tons of games down there that were big and complex and had lots of chits and were very big, you know, enjoyable war games that I played three times, right? And, you know, maybe every couple years I can convince somebody like Zachney to come over and set it all up and be like, ooh, this is great, and it takes a whole day. But but there is this sort of gamer ownership feeling about about board games that certainly we don't apply to video games because they're completely ephemeral. Um, and, and really about any other kind of game I can think about it. Um, I, I, and, and one of the criticisms that I've seen sort of levied against this was that this was some sort of genius slash evil marketing ploy that you were going to be, you know, selling all of us OCD gamers nine copies of the game. I mean, right. any, any, any thoughts on that? I mean, some of it has to do, obviously, with the fact that you guys now own Wizards of the Coast. So everybody's familiar with their previous magic addiction. Right. <laughs> Um, so I would like to say a couple things. Um, I'm not Satan's man child (laughs) for the record. Um, and the other thing is this was entirely my design vision and it was really came from a place of, Hey, would this be cool to design? Um, it was not about collectability or selling multiple copies. Um, the, the comment I like to make is, you know, Hasbro owns a lot of huge brands, and we sell things in very big stores and make very big movies. So if this was the ultimate marketing and sales plan, it probably wouldn't be applied to a smaller brand sold in hobby stores in three countries. Right. It might be a little um, more global than that is what you're right. saying. If, someone, if we thought we had captured some sort of repeat, repeat purchase gold, there are much bigger ways to, to do it. So, I mean, this, I, I see where people are coming from in a sense of, it was like a side effect I noticed in the middle of playtesting is we had one group um, in a different department in our company that was playing the game and giving feedback. 
And one of the guys said, hey, I'm going home for the weekend. I'm going to bring some non-disclosure agreements and, and play with my friends and we'll bang out a couple games and then so we can move this along. And all the other people at work said, no, you're not. This is our world. You're not taking this and having your friends who we don't know name cities and change <laughs> factions. You call Rob Davi and you get a whole new fresh one if you want to play with your friends. And so we, you know, he got in touch with me. And I'm like, well, I, you know, I can't make one in a day. There's a lot of handwork. But that's when I actually sat back and went, oh, wait a minute. People aren't going to lend this out to friends. Like it was, it, it's kind of like one of those things where you hear it later and you go, really? You didn't think about that earlier? It's like, no, I didn't. It was, it, I should have. It's obvious in retrospect. But it was really just, it was kind of my love of D&D in some sense of like, hey, let's create a story. Let's create a world. And I was sort of, I had a blind side to the idea of, yeah, but once you start writing on it and doing stuff, then you're going to have a sense of ownership and you're not going to want other people to touch it. Right. Right. I mean, that that's a, I think that's a, a critical thing. I think the other thing is there are so many, I mean, I, I've read stories of guys that like, you know, every time they find a game they love, they buy one to keep in shrink wrap and one to play with their friends because they don't want to deal with the, you know, people spilling stuff on their favorite game of something. And that completely gets obviated by this because, you know, keeping one in shrink wrap just means it's useless until you open it up again, right? Because the minute you open it up, you're back at square one, right? Um, yeah, although... I'm never going to say no to people who want to buy two of the game that I've so, so if that's your plan, I say buy three. You know, keep one in, in a safe hey, deposit box. We all like food. Yes, yeah. I get that. Um, no, I mean it's it's interesting. There's two reasons why people have had a resistance. One is the actual idea of well, what if I do something in early games and I get five games in and I want to start over because I don't like my decisions, which is sort of a design issue. And the other one is. You've tricked me into buying something that's disposable, which I, I, you know, the first one I get, the second one, I try to tell people I, I really didn't. I went out of my way to design it that once you've played probably at least 15, probably closer to 20 games of this, which Julian, to your point, is a lot for board game play, the game just stabilizes, right? It doesn't change anymore, but it's 100% playable. It's just like someone gave you a game and said, oh, here's a game of risk and it's got some some bunkers and some ammo shortages and some other cool stuff in there and some factions. So just play this game. So I really tried to go out of my way to not make it like when you were done, you had to throw the whole thing away. But, but as a designer, I mean, that end state, I mean, I, I, I know a little bit just from hanging around with you and a couple other board game designers. Um, you, you guys don't get the same kinds of repetitions in your play tests that say a video game does where, you know, the guys who are designing Halo multiplayer maps get, you know, 20,000 plays on a map to try to figure out what the balance issues are, right? You're not getting 20,000 plays of Risk Legacy out under your belt. I know that. So <laughs> yeah. that end game state, at, you know, game 15, I mean, you can't even imagine what the permutations are of whether that's a good game at the end of 15 or whether it's just horribly unbalanced and it's like, well, Bob got England, game's over, right? I mean... Um. Yeah, that's what keeps me up at night, right? <laughs> <laughs> because the permutations fall into the trillions, right, when you look at it. And so what we tried to design is that the players have to police the game. If the game becomes starts leaning towards imbalance, there's two things that will happen. One, there's probably some stuff in the, in the unlocks that try to bring it back into balance. It's a little bit of... Isaac Asimov's psychohistory that when designing, you look and you go, yeah, probably by game nine or 10, something's going to be out of whack and I don't know what, but I'm going to put this in and that should bring it back. But the, the second part, which I think is more important, is that 
and it seems to be the case when I'm I'm reading some early reviews from people and or sessions people playing in Germany where it came out a couple months ago, is that the group of players being experienced players when they get to the end of the game and are making decisions aren't making ridiculous decisions. You know, if if I bought the game by myself and I opened everything up and I customized it just the way I wanted, I'm I'm pretty sure I could break it so that every time I played I win. But when you get a group of three or four or five people doing making these decisions and kind of sort of collaborating, I think it would be very rare that it gets in that state. I'd like to say impossible, but someone will call me on it if I say that. <laughs> right, right. And, but, and, and, you know, to some extent, uh, you know, that creates an even more interesting narrative, right? And, and you've, you know, one of, one of the interesting questions I've had about this game is, you know, Risk is one of these games that's so heavily house-ruled. Like, I mean, anybody who's been playing with their, you know, 9, 10, 11, 12-year-old friends, which is sort of when I got hooked on this, um, we all had house rules, right? We all played variants of Castle Risk, and we had, you know, destruction games where you would, you know, drop a couple coins on the board, and those were nuked, and nobody could go there. Or they were impassable, right? I mean, this game has so many house rules. I wonder whether or not, you know, a, a 12 or 14-year-old picking this game up now, there's so many other things going on, whether you're ever going to think to house rule it, or whether all the house rules have kind of been baked in. Uh, it's a little bit of baking in the house rules. It's like, oh, you want things that do this? We'll put that in there. You want powers? You want, you know, surprises? You want twists? Like, okay, we'll put it all in there. Um, so we'll. I think it works. Well, and to an extent, you're distilling gears of experience, uh, you know, with risk house rules and sort of breaking the game and then fixing it. Uh, you know, all. I mean, how many how many years have you been working on? How many years have you been playing Risk? And how many years have you been working on it? Um, I have no idea how long I've been playing it. Uh, 30. Um, but I've been working as a designer at Hasbro for 13 years and have done between refreshing the base game, which sometimes involves putting missions in or changing rules or changing the win conditions and then doing, um, spinoffs like 2210 or licensed games like Lord of the Rings or star Wars, things like that. I've done like seven or eight risks, which when you look at it, there've only been like 13 published, so I looked at it at some point and realized I had done the majority, which was a very strange place to find myself in. That is a little crazy, <laughs> isn't it? Well, yeah, you know, it ju- it just seems to me going back to the the objections people have to permanence. It, it just seems like once again, Julian, we're, we're we're coming back to you know the strange psychology of, of gamers, how people think about the value propositions, uh, you know, they they get from their games. Where, you know, it's very strange for me to hear that, you know, Risk is inherently disposable, because to me, uh, Risk Legacy is disposable, because to me, uh, you know, the earlier Risks were the disposable ones. They were the ones that, I mean, if I played them, they, they, they weren't, they, they didn't, they weren't interesting enough that I would get that many sessions out of them, whereas Risk Legacy kind of, you know, gives you those cliffhanger endings that lead you on. Uh, and yet the idea that this is a game that reaches some sort of finite stage of development uh, as opposed to one that has a finite stage of development the moment you open the, open the box, you know, for some reason, gamers react differently uh, to those two propositions. Uh, it's, it's irrational, but I think we see it again and again with how, with how gamers sort of, whether they think they're being screwed or not. Yeah, it's hard to imagine you feel like you're getting screwed on this, though. I mean, I guess, you know, part of the issue here is that it's a, you know, it's an imprint of a game that you've been able to pick up on Walmart shelves for 15 bucks at Christmas, right? Uh, You know, which belies the fact there's so much more going on in this game than in a a plain vanilla version of Risk. 
Um, but but it does sort of bridge that gap between mainstream game, which get discount, which gets discounted at Christmas, and hobby game that we're used to paying fifty, sixty, seventy, eighty bucks for. Right? I mean, at this point, I mean, fantasy flight games go for seventy five dollars if they got enough bits in the box. Yeah, but there's something, and I and I get it. There's something about I'm going to play <clears throat> the I'm going to pay you know fifty, sixty dollars for Risk Legacy, and it has some things that are only going to happen once. Uh, because board games have the assumption, I've discovered this when designing games, that they're infinitely replayable. That you could put it in your attic, and you could leave it in your will, and your great-grandkids would pull it down, and they could just pick up where you left off, and it would be, you know, they last forever, and that there's there's no shelf life to them. Um, and so there's this real resistance when people pick up a game like this and say, but some things I'm only going to be able to do once. Um, and I think that's the thing that people are stumbling upon, and, you know... And also, see, people. Oh, go see, ahead. You, you talk about finding it in the attic. Yeah. My God, I, if if I was going to have my kids find this in the attic in twenty years, how much cooler would it be if it was a copy that had you know your signature on Australia and Zachney's signature on North America, right? And has this whole incredible story written out on it that's still playable, but has a, all this me in it. I mean, that actually sells me on the game even more, right? right I mean, as as a, as a legacy, it's like. I, wow, I just... Yeah, I just, you just did it. Thank I just you. did it, didn't I? I, I mean, as a legacy, it's like you want to take the board... Uh, the, I mean, it actually... I, it's a weird sidetrack, but um, I, I, in, I was in Amsterdam last spring and went to the Anne Frank house. And if you've read the Diary of Anne Frank, one of the parts as a gamer that stuck out to me is the boy gets given a game called Stocks and Bonds or something like that. And it becomes this obsession in the household because they obviously have nothing else to do in the Anne Frank house. Um, and th- and when you go to visit the Anne Frank house, they have the framed board of that actual board game with all the pieces in sort of this glass case, right? And there was a tremendous amount. I had was very emotional seeing that because I was like, wow, I, you know, that's something I can really connect with, that this thing happened all this time ago, you know, 60, 70, 80 years ago, however long ago it is now, um, that, you know, w- there was this gamer in this house and this was his life and they played 100 games on this. And, you know, that's the piece that broke because I remember that part of the book, right? I mean, how cool would that be to hand down to your kids? Very cool. I did not expect this conversation to go to the Anne Frank <laughs> So kudos for, for Nazi occupation, tie-in. Nazi occupation can come into any conversation on Three Moves Ahead. Wow. Okay. <laughs> so it, it all comes back to World War II. <laughs> well, there's something I've always wanted to mention to you, Rob, in there because um, when we talked earlier about like, is this a strategy game or is it more? I mean, I think it was a, a light strategy game that does a good job storytelling. You know, rather than you know, if you have to put emphasis on things, is the um, the five powers or the five factions at the beginning can have one of two powers. Each one is going to start with its own power. And so when trying to come up with those powers, what was the idea? What was the theme? What's the story behind these factions? Which led to some very, very abstract sense of thinking of how do you fight a war with an army? What are your themes? Like, do you build your army based on attack capability? Um, and it's the type of thing that I, at first I had grand visions of something like a giant tech tree of powers and everything going in. That was a little bit ambitious, even for a game that's overly ambitious like this. But ultimately what happens is the five factions represent, um, five very broad brushstrokes of how you can design an army. So one's built for attack, one's built for defense, one's built for mobility, one's built for organization, and one's built just for sheer numbers. 
And um, from there, it was interesting because then we designed the sculpts based on that and their names and their powers and everything sort of logically flowed from there. But it was an interesting exercise to sit down and say, as a game that's very light strategy like Risk, can we still somehow get the idea of armies acting in different ways in there? And the answer is yes, barely. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, from having played it, I, I think barely even might be selling it slightly short. I, I, certainly those, those little powers they have can make a big difference when you use them judiciously. Yeah, I mean, I think what we were trying to do on this is give people the tools to tell a story. Um, and so if we say that Imperial Balkania is, well, they're Imperial because it's in the name and that their powers, their choice of two powers are all about expansionism and sort of empire building, that what we were hoping is that the people who were playing them would take that and kind of riff and almost role play them and tell stories or, you know, claim things in the name of Balkania um, by just giving them that little hint of, hey, here's the, here's the story, allows the the narrative to kind of build from there. Are, do you think we're going to see mechanics like this, uh, you know, imported into other board game series? I mean, are we going to see Persistent Monopoly where, like, oh, man, on my board, like, Park Avenue's a shithole. Uh, are we, are, you know, are you going to sort of see the see it sort of break out of Risk Legacy, or do you think there's something about Risk that makes it a special case and a good candidate for systems like this? Um, I think Risk was a good candidate for the pilot program on this, um, because for a Hasbro game, um, there's a lot of complexity um, in terms of the rules are simple, but there's some squishiness you can put in. You can build powers and things that break rules and modifiers and stuff like that. So this game was very much the kitchen sink of design. Like we would come up with ideas and, um, you know, I'll give away something. Here's the first time I'm going to give away a semi spoiler. Um, somewhere in the game are scratch cards just because, well, Hey, we could, you know, so that you'll get a card. And actually even, even when you get to a card, it's unresolved that you have to do other things to figure out what to scratch off. So your game might be different from my game because you've, your game has chosen to scratch something off differently. Um, So there's way too much stuff in here to bring into something like Monopoly, right? This was designed for gamers who had played Risk and knew Risk and knew strategy games and were happy to go on sort of this uh, ride of a lot of different things coming together. But I definitely think that there's design space to work in, um, whether you're talking about very casual games or whether you're talking about other strategy games. My kids asked me what I wanted out of this game, and I said that there were really two things that I hoped happened after this game came out. Uh, one is that I had a family come up to me somewhere and say that they had played it with their kids and like had this sort of cool memories of like parents and, and sons or daughters and kids sort of like having this family thing together because that seemed pretty cool. And the other one is having one game designer sort of say like, oh, that gave me an idea. Right. So those are sort of like the, the things. So I think that it may give people ideas, but it could be a, a glorious disaster. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I'm I'm d- just excited as heck to see people try to apply this to other kinds of games, right? I mean that that to me is what's what's interesting here. Um, and and you know, while while people may you know kvetch and moan about 
um, you know, having to sign their board or put stickers on it. This idea of permanence in games, particularly in board games, I think is one that could use a lot more, uh, a lot more treatment from game designers, whether or not it's as permanent as putting a sticker on the board or not, right? Campaign modes, which is probably the closest thing we've seen in board games before, um, are often quite thin and are often sort of afterthoughts that always require the exact same two players to show up. Um, and, and this sort of gets around a lot of that. So I, you know, I'd love to see this kind of treatment to about two dozen games I could name off the top of my head. Advanced squad leader. Amen. You you develop your commanders and your squads. Hell yeah. That's just what we need to reboot that franchise. Well, I've always thought when I played advanced squad leader is there's not enough going on here. How can there be more? Right. It's just too simple, right? I'm just flipping a coin. It needs, it needs some hidden rules. Uh, it needs some, it needs, it doesn't have enough things that change from scenario to scenario. To to be fair, to be fair, you know, I think, um, you know, if, if ever there was a game that was all the way on the deep end of the pool with no tutorial and no way to get in, it's ASL. And what MMG has done with the sort of $20 starter set, boxes is has actually been to sort of sort of pare it down to this tutorial level where you buy sort of one little tiny box and you get everything you get is completely accurate for the big game and it's never going to get unused later on but it just it, it sort of is sort of the, the unboxing in reverse right where you're starting with one little box and then opening the next little box and then opening the next little box and pretty soon you're playing advanced squad leader so they've given it a shot. They've given it right. a shot. Well, no, and that's and and that's very that's very smart. I mean, to to bring it back to, you know, what what you sort of did with Risk Legacy. I mean, I, I think there is this. I I think there's a tendency for games to give it all the players at once. Uh, certainly in video games, uh, this is a problem that I've I feel like I've been dealing with more and more lately in like grand strat grand strategic games where it's like. You have so much more here that I'm capable of learning right now, and I'm so busy learning it that I can't that I can't find where it's fun. But breaking <laughs> it down to you know here's here's a slice of the game. You know here's you know this is going to emphasize certain aspects of the game. You're going to nail those down, and if you like it, then see what's over the over the next horizon. Uh, you know that's that seems so much more effective than sort of dumping it all at the player's feet and saying. Well, once you learn how all this stuff goes together, you'll have a great time, kid, and then walking right. away. Yeah, there have been games that I played that just drinking from the fire hose, like you're just sitting there and you've got so many powers and so many things to learn that it just, I, I can't get my head around it. And, you know, I end up walking away more frustrated than intrigued by the game um, because I know that I was missing large chunks of it and I couldn't figure out how to make it work. And, you know, that whole idea of just portioning stuff out. Um, I, I think is the way that, well, it's how people learn in general, and I really think it's a way that a lot of tabletop games need to be looking at things in the future. All right. Well, that will do it for our discussion of Risk Legacy. Rob, thank you so much for being on the show. Uh, we should have made this clear up front, but chances are you figured it out already. Uh, we're good friends with Rob, and so if you want <laughs> if you want a detached, objective opinion on Risk Legacy, uh, you might want to look elsewhere, although I'm not sure really you'll find that on Board Game Geek either. But uh, I definitely, I definitely encourage you to check it out for yourself. Find a friend who has it. Uh, but if you're interested in getting it yourself, it goes on sale today, this week, right? Rob? Today. today, today, tomorrow. Right. Yeah, I, um, I saw the tweet from Endgame Oakland that it had finally shown up in stores. He was very excited. Okay, and Amazon says it's released on December seventh, but <laughs> that's it. That's it. Friendly local hood, local neighborhood game store for the win. So it's in yeah. it's in game stores now. 
Um, certainly by the time uh, this podcast comes out, it, it'll be in game stores. And uh, yeah, on uh, Amazon, on um, a day that'll live in infamy, right? Pearl Harbor Day, I think is when they're listing it. Are they? And, that's, fin- that's and finally, that event is overshadowed. <laughs> when, yes. you'll be able to, when you'll be able to order the Risk Legacy. <laughs> yes, as it's now from here on out, will be known as Risk Legacy Day. So... All right, well, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, I really enjoy the game. Uh, it's the first risk that actually you know, has sort of excited me and has me eager to go back and play more. Uh, and I really hope that some of these ideas at least find their way into other board games. I think there's, there's a lot of great stuff here uh, going on. Anyway, thank you very much for listening, and uh, by the time you, you hear this, chances are Thanksgiving will, already, will have already passed. Uh, so I hope you've all had a great holiday, and we will catch up with you in December. Good night.